Hello and welcome to Meet Me in the Middle, the podcast that talks about finding middle ground within wellness world, lifestyle, culture, life, etc. I am Jenny Omani. And I'm Annika Buckle. Um, we say it every time because we mean it deeply. If you are enjoying listening to us, please go give us a review, share us with your friends. Very easy to do on the social medias these days. Um, and it, it only takes a second, but it means a lot to us. So thank you in advance. And I'm going to apologize in advance for my sort of smelly cat Phoebe voice. <laughs> if you don't know that reference, I urge you to pause, go to Google and put in friends plus smelly cat. <laughs> <laughs> I have allergies. I'm an allergy sufferer. Anyways, it's spring. It's good. We're not going to complain because it's spring. <laughs> allergies mean summer's coming. Yay. Yes, uh. <laughs> um, let's talk about the Mediterranean diet today. I am excited about this because I feel like we've kind of been dancing around it a little bit over our yep. last couple of episodes. And I'm jacked to do a deep dive because I feel like there's, yeah, there's stuff to say. There's yeah. depth. There's <laughs> depth to dive to. <laughs> yeah. uh, like, what do you know about the Mediterranean diet? Well, I know that it generally seems to be one that is in terms of, you know, diet being things you eat, not necessarily diet being a caloric deficit. <laughs> um, it tends to be one that seems to be generally well reviewed by medical professionals. It seems to be one that seems to kind of hit all of the high notes when it comes to you know, long-term health impact of, you know, diet related things. Um, and that's about it. Other than every time I hear, uh, somebody say Mediterranean diet, I always just think, oh man, wouldn't it be nice to be sitting on the coast of Greece or something right now? <laughs> I could really go for that. <laughs> you just think of like the view mm-hmm. <laughs> and like pretty white buildings on yes. a sharp cliff, cliff. Yeah. setting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And nothing says health like the calmness that takes over your brain with that visual. Seriously. Oh, I, I look, somebody says it and I feel healthier, so it must work. No, I'm just I know, right? <laughs> right. Anecdotally, N of one, I'm in. Um, yeah, totally. So the diet itself refers to traditional foods of the um, people who live in the countries that surround the Mediterranean Sea. So we tend to think of as Western people like Greece, Italy, Spain, maybe even Morocco, but that's also includes Egypt and Lebanon, right? Mm. Because they surround the Mediterranean Sea. (laughs) (laughs) How it works. That's how it works. Um, And actually, if you think about it, there's a lot of crossover in the food. Like if you just, Mm. I mean, we live in Vancouver, we have a very um, diverse food accessibility here. Like we have so many different cultures and food and representation, um, like restaurant wise here. So we're kind of lucky that we get kind of like, I've, I have had been to restaurants with people from those countries, making food from all those countries here in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, and, and it's all delicious. Not gonna lie. (laughs) (laughs) I was not disappointed by any of my experiences. (laughs) Um, Now, the thing that's important to note is that we are actually talking about the diets from these cultures or, and by diet, I mean like literally just the food that they're eating. Nobody's counting anything. It's just the, you're thinking more. It's the food you eat, not a caloric deficit. Yeah. The food you eat. And in terms of like what the people are traditionally eating 
mm-hmm. these countries. And we're actually looking at a snapshot in the 1960s. Oh, that's, that's important when, to know, I feel like. Yes. So that's when uh, the initial data for this comes in. And then um, anything projected forwards in terms of studies and what they call the Mediterranean diet is looking at the foods that were eaten in the 1960s. It's not hard to sort of see why that would be because <laughs> after that, you know, once we get to like the 80s, 90s, fast food kind of takes over and the diet, like the air quotes, um, like cultural foods that would have been eaten there traditionally shift. Yeah. I mean, globalization has dramatically impacted every corner of the world. So there you can get McDonald's everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And McDonald's is not the cultural norm for a lot of places. Hamburgers and fries, not traditional Egyptian uh, fare. No delicious, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) delicious nonetheless, but yeah. So that's what, so this is all a snapshot from the 1960s. The data is from the 1960s. Initially, I would probably argue that the food that they were eating in the 1960s is probably reflective of what's been eaten there for a while plus or minus some time during like wars and things where maybe there was like a bit more scarcity, but I believe, and this is me not with anything to substantiate this, that a lot of these places were very eating quite locally, traditionally anyways, like they weren't, these aren't huge import countries for food. So like Greece, like you're looking at like a bunch of islands, right? Like there people are and like a farming culture. So people are eating what is readily available. So probably 1960s is reflective of going back, um, you know, a, a ways in time. And even in the 60s, transporting food, it, like, well, better than it would have been 100 years before still isn't like it is now. Like you're not hopping right. on a plane and like very quickly sending all stuff to all these like random little islands. Right. And around the Mediterranean Sea. All of, I mean, this, the kind of band, when we look, you know, just at the, at the globe, you know, this is a band that a lot of things grow really well into. Right. So it, it's not like, for example, you know, living really North and having a much more scarce variety. You've got a long growing season, Mm -hmm. right? Like you've got a mild climate, you've got um, good rainfall, you've got the parts of Egypt lining the Mediterranean Sea likely have a lot more rainfall than like the desert part right. of Egypt. It's it's right. not a small country. There's so, like, a <laughs> variety of terrain in all of these areas. Yeah, we, we are not. Yes, yeah. it, totally. None but, of them yeah. are monolith, but within those, even the within the borders. Climates. Yeah. Um. So the basis for the diet, and I'm going to use the term diet kind of in air quotes because there's no measuring, there's no weighing, there's no... There's nothing restrictive. The focus is more on eat. These are the foods that this, the, you know, are eaten more than there's the foods that are eaten less. So there's not like a no, there's no hard nose or anything like that. But the basis of it, if you want to think of like, if this were the food pyramid or whatever, the base is going to be plant-based foods, um, things with whole grains, Lots of vegetables and legumes, fruits, um, very heavy in nuts, Mm. seeds, herbs, and spices. Like if you think about just if you were going to go to like, I don't know, like a Greek restaurant, Mm -hmm. there's so much in terms of herbs and spices, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then olive oil is the main source of added fat. What you're going to eat less of, but not zero, is fish, seafood, dairy, poultry, 
Um, and then red meat and sweets are like in the occasional side of things. Right. So you're really looking at like a plant forward diet. Right. Um, you do see this recommended a lot, like in present day by cardiologists, because mm-hmm. there are just so, so, so many studies showing the benefits of Mediterranean diet in reducing cardiovascular disease. If you're looking at people with diabetes who are, who are monitoring their blood sugars, having foods that are like have higher in fiber, um, and more plant-based, these are things that are going to be better for blood sugar regulation for somebody whose insulin response isn't awesome versus having like a carbohydrate heavy diet. So you're saying you could choose to eat in this way instead of using a continuous glucose monitor, for example, if you are a healthy person who is not living with diabetes. <laughs> Literally more studies than any human could count would say yes. So it, it's kind of just this very well accepted diet um lifestyle way of eating. And I think part of what lends to it being so highly recommended is it's not hard to follow. There's no Mm. real rules. Now, having said that, sometimes having no rules is actually really hard to follow. And people, that's why people are drawn to these more restrictive diets because it tells them exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. And that's why those diets work really well short-term, but then long-term you just can't stick to them. Whereas something like this would probably fall more under the, like the air quotes, lifestyle change in that it takes a while to get your um, sort of your head around exactly what eating in an air quotes Mediterranean diet looks like, but because it's not heavily restrictive, you can easily go to a restaurant and go, okay, so I'm going heavy on the vegetables and like, okay, I'm not gonna eat a bunch of meat. Okay. Maybe I'll do a salad or, you know what I mean? Like there's different, it's not, you're not limited by, um, these really tight constraints, you're going to be limited by budget. You're going to be limited by (laughs) other variables and socioeconomic things, but purely from a, what you are and aren't allowed to eat perspective, it's not a limiting diet. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it probably, I would imagine, I am not a cardiologist, but I would imagine as a cardiologist, you probably feel like pretty good suggesting this as a diet because you aren't giving somebody something that's highly restrictive that feels really like a, like a punishment. Mm. Um, and you've got lots of data to support it. So it probably feels nice to be like, Hey, like here's this, this thing that works really well. And it's actually not that hard for you to, to do within, you know, your grocery shopping, eating restaurants, et cetera. So, well, and I think again, oh, yeah. that that's kind of that key piece, right? Like it's not, it's diet in terms of like what you looking at what you eat, but not diet in terms of, you know, restriction and calorie counting. And I think, you know, we've kind of touched on this before. I know I, I see this message from registered dietitians a lot is like, rather than thinking about what you can eliminate, think about what you can add, right? Because totally. it's much easier to think, okay, I'm going to add in a spinach salad before I have my you know, tuna sandwich, or I'm going to add in broccoli with my ramen noodles rather than, oh, I'm not allowed to eat ramen noodles. Oh, I couldn't have the bread and my tuna sandwich, right? What can we add rather than what can we take away? Totally. And this is where we see like in the nineties, when this really sort of comes in, this is where we see kind of the end of the low fat era. Um, because sort of the eighties were like an early nineties were really heavily into like low fat, fat is bad. And what the Mediterranean diet showed was that actually health, there's like healthy fats Mm -hmm. and they're good for you. 
Right. And, right. And well, and I think we saw this, it's, I mean, as we tend to see, unfortunately, with the way that our human brains work and the way that the media latches onto things, we see this massive pendulum swing. Yes. So it's like low fat, everything, but the yep. fat is then replaced with sugar or, you know, lots of carbohydrates or, you know, it's like there are healthy and unhealthy ways to do anything. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Right. And then, you know, we see something like the Mediterranean diet come in that's, that is air quotes, higher fat, but you're looking at fat from things like, um, nuts, olives, nuts, <laughs> olives. Right. And then the Atkins diet, it's like, hold my beer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right, right. Off right. We go. And then the pendulum <laughs> yeah. swings back in the other direction. Totally. Yeah, totally. But what's interesting and where this sort of switch comes in is that they actually find that when they compare people on the Mediterranean diet to the, to like a traditional low fat diet, the Mediterranean diet group actually had a low, a 30% lower relative risk of cardiovascular events, <laughs> which is like heart attack, stroke, um, than the low fat group. Interesting, so eh? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's actually really interesting when you look, like we said about these pendulums and this mm-hmm. kind of sits in the middle, like our little middle ground friend. And then <laughs> these other diets were like, we off we go. High fat. Right. Everything. Yay, it's good for you. Right. So. Yeah. yeah so and then, I can come along. And then keto comes along and it's like, hold my beer. Oh my God. Carnivore <laughs> diet. I know the whole, it's so funny. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Let's go back. So the nineties is where this takes off and we sort of see that it, it hits the middle of the pendulum sort of like stops in the middle. They're like, Hey, look, there's this diet. That's like pretty in the middle before it swings into other fad di- <laughs> diets. Um, so let's do a little timeline and then let's talk about what the actual benefits are now that we are decades and decades later. Mm. So if we want to go back though, so where it all begins is with a physiologist and food researcher um, named Ansel Keys. So Ansel Keys is a physiologist. He's a food researcher. Um, He studied at Berkeley. And in the 50s to the 80s, he's like kind of like the leading food research guy. Um, He's quite pioneering. Um, If we think about the time period that he's doing his research, of course, he is studying um, you know, patients that are in um, mental health institutions uh, that are institutionalized because that was honestly, that was a big population for data collection for studies. Um, and we could talk forever about how there's like moral and ethical implications, but he's not the only person to do that. Uh, no, he's not, I mean, we yeah. saw this when we touched on, you know, eugenics, when we talked yeah. about Dr. Kellogg you know, it's, I think it's an important part of history to talk about and acknowledge, you know, to say, we know that this is where this comes from. And these are the reasons that this is problematic. And, you know, the data is still the data. I don't know. I I feel a bit weird sometimes using that data because it feels like it's dirty data, if that makes sense, you know? Well, the good news is it's still information. The Mediterranean diet, that's not how we studied it. But right. it's just sort of important when you look at a, mm-hmm. someone who's like, air quotes, a historical figure or whatever, to just recognize that there's a lot of context. And the context at the time was that ethics were totally aligned with um, institutionalized individuals being used for studying purposes. Yeah. And that was very acceptable. This It was not taboo. It was not like he was not doing anything that at the time in a mainstream sense was, was air quotes bad. It was just how they studied things. 
Um, so he's the guy, he's the first person to suggest uh, what is known as the diet heart hypothesis, um, that heart disease is caused by diet. Hmm. What's really interesting though, we have to also think we have to put ourselves into like the 1950s, 60s, like this is pre um, obesity epidemic. This is pre like real serious public fat phobia. Mm. Um, so he's literally looking at like nowhere in any of his stuff. Does it talk about weight or obesity? It's all about food, like dietary stuff and cardiovascular disease and, and, and heart attacks and strokes and all that. So it's actually really interesting because nowhere in any of these suggestions and, um, recommendations that he has is weight a factor because it really wasn't, didn't seem like it was on the radar then. Right. Which is fascinating. Well, it's interesting, right? Because I feel like, and you know, we've touched on this before, but so often we have this conversation about weight, you know, extraneous of health. We pretend it's about health, but we actually aren't interested in talking about health markers Mm -hmm. because we're so busy focused on weight. Yeah. So, you know, again, much like the pendulum swing, I think that's what we've seen with this, you know, kind of fear around obesity and and truly around fat phobia um it's so interesting when you see the way that kind of history shifts right Mm -hmm. and i mean yeah he's going off of blood markers and then outcomes in terms of cardiovascular health um the weight stigma i think has always existed but I think that the data collection in terms of um, adding weight in as a factor just wasn't, there just wasn't this like whole moral panic about it then. Yes. It, I think that's <laughs> a good way to talk about it. It doesn't mean that it was necessarily easy for somebody in a fat body, but it didn't no. have the same moral no. panic around health, quote unquote health, yes. like we see now. Exactly. Exactly. So he's the first guy to say that heart disease is caused by diet and that cholesterol is actually caused by um, consumption of saturated fat. So this was a very new concept. This was his hypothesis. And he, what is sort of the extent of his hypothesis was that if you replace dietary saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat, so, and the kind of the easy way to think about that is like animal-based fat with plant-based fats. Like there's a lot of nuance and that's not completely correct. That's an oversimplification, but it's a simplification right. <laughs> take because your animal it is, fats. because it is very complicated right it's super actually, complicated yeah. well and when you look at fats you're looking at like fatty acid chains and it's it's all biochemistry so let's just like make it really really dumbed down and i'm so sorry for any of my friends who like actually have <laughs> really robust knowledge in this area because this is oversimplified but yelling at their headphones right now <laughs> they're like jesus jenny what the fuck so <laughs> So he hypothesized that replacing dietary saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat reduced cardiovascular disease. And his hypothesis is actually still today um, supported by evidence. And it's the backbone of many dietary cardiology guidelines. So this is actually a really influential thinker in terms of cardiovascular health health guidelines. Um, it's really interesting because where he gets this from is he noticed that American business executives who, I mean, you would assume are some of the best fed people in the world, like in the world, at least in the country, um, had, they had really high rates of heart disease. Um, 
And in post-war Europe, they had like very, a huge decrease in cardiovascular disease um, during this period of time where they had reduced food supplies. So he's like, okay, we have this population that like really doesn't have access to food the same way we do. And yet they're somehow healthier from a cardiovascular disease standpoint. Now, we the obvious thing here that jumps at me is like, well, how are they, are they really that focused in post-war Europe and collecting data <laughs> on cardiovascular disease when you've just identified that like food's a problem? Like, like it feels is like this there where are, the focus is? Are we rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic a little bit right now? Like totally. I was like, well, no shit. No one in Europe is paying. Like, so, so there's, there's obviously some big glaring things where it's like, America was way less impacted by World War II. Yeah, it didn't Europe. happen on their on their soil, no. right? It's, yeah, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't impacted, right? But like, but it, there's a very different experience going off to war than having war come to you, right? There, there wasn't widespread devastation, and like, there wasn't a giant chunk of the population that just disappeared. There, it wasn't. It, it's apples and oranges. And so, yeah, is this really, is this form of data collection what's really being focused on in Europe? I mean, probably not. And then the second thing that's really, really obvious is, is, are the data collection methods equal, <laughs> right? Like, so, so well, are you when, actually comparing right. two comparable things? And we know even from, you know, the way that things like deaths are recorded from country to country that yeah, they're different. It's almost impossible. I was um, listening to another podcast talking about this. It's like you can't compare deaths from, say, diabetes from the U.S. to um, Europe because of the way that it's recorded on a death certificate. Yeah. So you have no that there's no insight into that. So even yeah. if you're looking at, you know, the hard data of, say, death certificates, it's still not even painting you a picture of what's maybe going on or maybe not going on. We just can't say. <laughs> totally. So, I mean, his hypothesis is very interesting, right? It's like, OK, we have these people that are eating really well and they're by some accounts air quotes, like sicker. And we have people who aren't eating well and they seem to be healthier. So we've just highlighted that there's some real obvious glaring uh, issues with that hypothesis, but um, he carries on. And I mean, we, we know where this ends. He comes up with, <laughs> he comes up with something that to this day is still really um, scientifically well backed, researched. right? Yeah. So we can be Debbie Downers all you want. Like, I don't know, Ansel was onto something. So he, um, Ansel gets really into looking at this European data and he notices that in Southern Italy, there's the highest concentration of centurions in the world, AKA people who live to be a hundred. Um, I have so many questions about why, like, why did all these old people stay? Like, I'm so curious as to, to why, <laughs> But he notices that and he, so he kind of zones in on Southern Italy and hypothesizes that their diet, which is low in animal fat, um, protects against heart disease. And that therefore, if you have a diet high in animal fats, you're more prone to heart disease. Um, and that's kind of how he, he goes on this, this, this journey. He does what's known as the seven countries study. Mm. It's a really famous study, um, now it's not seven countries because one of them is the former Yugoslavia. <laughs> so the former Yugoslavia, US, 
Finland, Netherlands, Italy, Greece, and Japan are the studies that he he uses. Keep in mind, in the 1950s, I feel like we would consider that to be very worldly, even though right. now we're like, that is absolutely not right, not worldly at all. Um, but it was the first multi-country epidemiological study that was ever done. So it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically looked at the relationships between lifestyle, diet, coronary heart disease, and stroke. Now, what's interesting is what the takeaways are are all related to diet in relationship to coronary heart disease. And I think lifestyle is actually really important here, but that's not, doesn't come up again. That that's not, that's not what Ansel Keys is going to talk to us about. No, that is not what's going to come up. Well, and I think that the recognition that like lifestyle socioeconomic factors like poverty Mm -hmm. race discrimination gender Mm -hmm. identity those things are layers that we are only just now starting to peel back and recognize the significant impact those have on people's health long-term health especially um so i mean it's not totally surprising that we're not hearing that from Mr. Dr. Keys in the 50s. From like a dude, from a white dude in the <laughs> From 1950s. a white dude in the 50s. <laughs> Shocker. So the outcome of his seven country study, um, and we can pull apart how he found all of this information, but the outcome is that heart attack and stroke, both at the population level and at the individual level, correlated directly and independently to the level of total serum cholesterol in all of the countries he sampled. So he would basically do blood draws on these people and then f- figure out what their their blood cholesterol levels are. And he directly linked higher blood cholesterol equals higher risk for heart attack and stroke. And he mapped this out over time as well. The thing that's really cool about this study is that despite its flaws, which were pointed out basically immediately after it was published, this study confirmed what we still widely accept as risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So blood pressure, blood cholesterol level, and cigarette smoking, Hmm. right? I feel like in the 50s, that would have been almost revolutionary to acknowledge that like smoking with your windows rolled up, smoking in your house with your children. Yeah. (laughs) Those are not actually great things to do. Smoking in an airplane. But I would just like to know, Ansel, how many of these hundred-year-olds in southern Italy were smoking? Because I have been to Italy, and they love smoking. And this is now like decades and decades since we've known it is bad for you. So maybe it's protective for certain people. Just don't don't go smoke. It's bad for you. It's definitely bad for you. But if you go to Europe, you see all these like super super old people living their best lives smoking cigarettes. So yes, of course, there is criticism on the study when it comes out. There's definitely cherry-picked data. There were countries in Europe that this data did not that did not have the same findings. Hmm. He just chose not to use, use them. <laughs> oh, I don't like those results. Let's just exclude that country. Oh, yeah. Looks like oh, it's yeah. only seven now. Whoa. Yeah, sorry, can't use Germany. That <laughs> <laughs> they don't support my hypothesis. But even despite all of these issues, like I said, this the the blood cholesterol risk for heart disease has been studied over and over and over and over again and it still appears true like it's still resounding true so i think it's it's just a great example of how flawed things can be and how problematic some things can be but you can still have parts of it that mm-hmm. are 
totally true and have stood the test of time. But um, poor Ansel doesn't really get... Uh, so he... Ansel leaves this study as like the guy that's like, hey, saturated fat's not good for you. It's going to leave. It, it leads to heart disease. Um, the diet itself, the Mediterranean diet, doesn't become widely popular till the 1990s. And that's when um, Harvard University's School of Public Health picks, picks it up. And this is where we start this whole like the French paradox where it's like, right, why are Butter the French the people so healthy and, the, and they're right. eating all this un- fatty stuff? And that's where you get the whole thing where it's like red wine's good for you. And that whole spin that that whole like emotional journey that happened in the 90s, <laughs> it comes from this. And I don't know, I couldn't figure out exactly why the good people at harvard school of public health like picked up on the mediterranean diet when they did because all of this work had been published like well over a decade before Hmm. but they did um and what's interesting if we go back to the actual mediterranean diet like i said this has so many studies to support it being an effective um, and healthy diet um in 2014 they did two massive meta-analysis studies that found that the Mediterranean diet was associated with a decreased risk of type two diabetes. Um, they replicated those findings in 2017 with a further review. Um, in 2019, the American Diabetes Association, um, it, like, at basically says, like, yes, this is a healthy diet for you to reduce your risk of getting type two diabetes. Um, in 2016, some more sort of cautious. Um, reviews come out saying that they need more information. Um, basically there needs to be more standardized research and that stems from how highly variable data collection can be for food studies. I was just going to say, this is the same problem that we run into again and again, right? As much as we want there to be really easy ways to measure these things, the reality is they're very challenging to measure in any really rigorous scientific way. Totally. Because people don't remember what they eat. And people aren't good at knowing how much, like no. people don't understand serving sizes. People don't know what a tablespoon is. I can't even like. remember how many times I filled up my water bottle today. <laughs> and I have a giant, like 1.2 <laughs> liter Stanley. Like it should, I should remember if I filled this stupid giant water bottle up. <laughs> we're like, we're just not good at remembering stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. well, the, these reviews that are like more cautious, Aren't, don't say that they think that the diet's unsafe. They just say like, hey, if we want to say there's a strong correlation with it right. helping any of these cardiovascular risk factors, we just need to need be a bit more staunch data. and standardized. Mm-hmm. But they all conclusively say that the the cons and the risks are like none. Right. <laughs> so right. even the most sort of guarded information about the Mediterranean diet is more like, Hey, what? I don't know if we can claim all of these amazing things, but it sure as hell doesn't hurt anything. It's like almost a little bit like collagen, right? It's like, we don't know if it does all of these things that we say that it does, but we do know that it's probably not going to do anything bad. So yeah, it's not going to do anything bad for you. Yeah. And I think if you look at any food pyramids, any of these things, eating fruits and vegetables is like it's always agreed a good upon idea. is good for for you, right? <laughs> like any data supported 
diet information says to eat vegetables and fiber. Like, yeah, totally. Like, well, it's and never when we been debatable. At, right, right. Well, exactly. okay, I'm sure. Well, <laughs> there are people that don't it like the legumes you, and the nightshades, but whatever. Debate it, but generally speaking, I think you know we talk about this a lot. There are very few kind of quote unquote rules that you can. <laughs> peanut butter apply across things um <laughs> if you will but the reality is eating more vegetables eating more whole foods generally is never a bad plan totally and when it comes to things like cancer risk um they did a in 2021 they did a really big review and found that the mediterranean diet is associated with a 13 percent lower risk of cancer mortality among the general population now that's mortality doesn't mean right. that you don't get it, but like 13%, like not nothing. That's not nothing. Mm-hmm. Right? Especially and when if you we think know about, so many people get cancer. Well, I was right? just going to say 13% of a big number is a big number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's one of those, those things that it's, you have to look at both sides and you look at, okay, like what are the cons? And the real cons are going to be accessibility and whether mm-hmm. people can afford to eat whole accessibility. foods. Yeah. Right. Nuts are hella expensive nuts are very expensive and like so is fresh produce and we've talked about this extensively like my family's actively trying to cut down our meat consumption from like an environmental standpoint and it's hard to Mm. find really easy kid pleasing meals that don't have like chicken in it Mm -hmm. even though chicken's like the least of the bad environmental meats it still is right so um, one thing I do find hilarious is you remember how they, it was like, yay, use your olive oil. Olive oil is good for you. Olive oil is not the staple fat in most of the Mediterranean. <laughs> no way. Blowing my they mind. use lard and butter for cooking. Olive oil. I feel like just salad dressings and like cooked vegetables and stuff. (laughs) I feel like in my head, like I think Mediterranean diet, I think like first, obviously sitting on like a beautiful Grecian coast. But the next thing I think about is like, I think about nuts and I think about olive oil and I think about salads, but like olive oil is probably top three things I think about in relation to this diet. So that's fascinating. Well, but if you think about it, if you have a population who historically was not, um, having a lot of food waste, of course they're cooking with lard. Right. Because what else are you going to do with it? You got to use it. If you're looking at people that are doing a lot of their own farming, they're living in, you know, mm-hmm. areas where they're being self-sufficient with their food. Like yeah. they are not wasting. Yeah, So totally. So yeah, they're not going to eat a lot of dairy and all that because like you only have so many goats and cows and and whatever. But when you butcher an animal, you are using every use... part of that animal. Yeah. Nothing goes to waste. Nothing goes to waste. Right. And of course, butter is just part of like, if you're going to milk an animal, <laughs> you're going to maximize the yield of that. Right. Yep, totally. You're going to skin the fat off the top. You're going to do, you're going to do these things to maximize the benefits of the work that you've put into that animal. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. of course- yeah. They are cooking yeah, it, with lard. <laughs> it makes total sense, right? Yeah. It makes absolute perfect sense. I just thought that was so funny. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait I a can't, minute. I can't say I'm going to start cooking with lard based on this conversation that we are having today, but. <laughs> oh my gosh. It, but it is, again, this is just an interesting thing to think about. I think it's, um, I think it's really easy to romanticize 
things. I think it's easy to romanticize things that we have good feelings about. I think it's easy to romanticize things from the quote unquote past, you know, totally. things were better when. Um, but I think, you know, again, this context is really important. It's important that we, you know, look at what reality is and not just like what we wish or imagine it could be. <laughs> totally. And I found this really interesting t- statistic that, um, it is hypothesized that if people adapted um, a Mediterranean-like diet versus going, like, you don't have to be vegan to have a big impact on climate Hmm. issues. And if you adopt a Mediterranean-like diet, it has a potential to reduce the per capita reduction of greenhouse gases by 30%. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. And the thing that is so interesting to me with this is to me, when I think of a vegan diet, I'm like, oh, like part of me is like, I'd love to be able to do that, but it's too much work as horrible as it is to say, for me, it is too much work. There's just too many things in it. I I don't want to spend that much effort figuring out what I'm eating. I, I don't want to, I don't want to go to a restaurant and like have to go through a whole ingredient list. Like there are people with allergies that have to do that. And I feel bad for them, but the idea of going like, oh, some a diet where you're encompassing eating, focusing more on certain foods, and then by default, you're eating less of others. Like that just feels easier. Mm-hmm. That feels less restrictive. And like Mediterranean food is delicious. <laughs> and the, honestly, the thing that I that got glazed over that we talked a bit about in the beginning is that think about how people eat in these areas as families. It's social. Mm-hmm. You're sitting together. Mm-hmm. You're eating with people. There is community. And that is so like emotionally neuroprotective. It's so there's so many benefits to being in community. And I I mean, what would that what does that do to stress levels for people? We know stress I, isn't good for you. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that because, you know, when you mentioned the like these like American businessmen versus, you know, whatever is happening in a kind of still very rationed Europe, my my first thought is, you know, it's not just what we're eating, but how we're eating it. exactly you're eating something over your desk while you're in a meeting you're like eating something in your car while you're driving to pick up your kids right this is the reality of the pace of life often for us especially now you know probably even 10 times more than it would have been in the 50s but you know what what is the long-term effect of things like that right I mean have you ever gone on vacation to Spain and learned that everybody has a nap in the afternoon and nothing's <laughs> open? Right? Siesta time. Like it's, right. it is a cultural mm-hmm. thing. And what does that extra rest mm-hmm. do? Mm-hmm. Right? It's the, there's so many factors. And I think that it's really hard to measure a lot of those like lifestyle factors. Yes. Happiness, and connection. Like how do you measure that? You can't measure it. And as we often talk about, you can't market it. Hard to hard to market, spend time with your family in a way that is, you know, you can monetize. <laughs> well, this is the thing. So I think that um, that's actually a huge part of it. And I it gets glazed over, which I understand why. It's very hard to have data points 
to point to like we can barely have data points on food so (laughs) right and that's a measure like a a quantitative (laughs) thing and we can't quantitate it because of all these limitations yeah you can't quantify social gatherings eating with people family connection right having that i mean i know as moms we hear this you know village concept all the time but the reality is you know we know people have better health health outcomes when they're surrounded by support and family and yes. friends and loved ones. Yeah. There's lots across, of data yeah, to show across that. everything, right? It's. And I think that's kind of, if we were to tie a little bow on this, it's like, sure. Do I personally in my N of one experience feel that this diet is probably good for most people? Yeah, probably. I mean, it's, if you can afford to buy groceries and be a bit selective about what you're buying, then there isn't really a downfall to it. Now, the downfall is, of course, if you don't have the privilege of being able to um, pick, which be selective with your groceries and, and, and whatnot. So it does exclude a big chunk of the population that way. It also relies um, a lot more on um, cooking and making your own mm-hmm. food, which is a time luxury, right? Yes, and that's not huge. like. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know you hate cooking. Oh, <laughs> but do I ever? But I also do could. it. Every, I do it five days a week, even <laughs> right. though I hate it because I recognize, you know, for our family, there is value in sitting down to a meal that I cooked partially out of a subscription box. <laughs> but that's also where I, a lot of the um weight loss and the lifestyle changes come from is when people start cooking their own food Mm -hmm. versus buying because you're just more aware of what is going into it you're more likely to be eating less highly super highly processed foods you're Mm -hmm. just you're gonna eat more whole foods you're gonna make you know innately air quotes healthier choices when you're cooking things from scratch versus from a box or whatever Well, and, you know, again, when we look at that, like the stress piece and the slowing down piece, it is very hard to cook a meal and not have slowed down in that period of time, right? You can't cook a meal in your car. You can't cook a meal standing at your desk in a meeting, right? So I think when we look at those, you know, very hard to measure factors around it, all of those things play into it. I think that's such a really important conversation to have. And again, to your point, these are points of privilege, all of them across the board, unfortunately for us now uh, in probably most of the world, but, you know, particularly I feel that here in North America. Um, And I think, again, this is one of the places that we start to see, you know, what is the impact of stress on our cardiovascular system? What is the impact of spending 30 years, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and concerned about how you're going to pay your rent? What is the impact of that on your cardiovascular system? That is very hard to measure, but I, I think we would be remiss to say it's nothing. Totally. And, you know, we talked about um, movement and, you know, how activity level. And of course in the 1960s in these areas, like you've got a very active population, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like they are more active and, you know, we, you know, those of us that sit at a desk for work or, you know, like it's just a different, um, lifestyle versus if you're in a small village and you're, you've got to walk walk to your shops, you got to go to do this. You got to right. Whereas here, everything's just at our fingertips. Mm -hmm. Comes to my door as much as humanly possible for uh, better and for worse. (laughs) I mean, 
let's just have a little blessing moment for Amazon because <laughs> damn you, Jeff, Jeff Benzos. <laughs> You're so helpful and convenient sometimes. <laughs> well, and again, I think when we look at, you know, if we look at our some of our most precious resources being you know, money and time, how do we find a balance in those things that doesn't preclude, you know, healthy outcomes? It becomes really challenging, right? Yeah, totally. And therein lies the paradox. But yeah, that's it. That's a Mediterranean diet. You should probably eat it, apparently. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Apparently it's good for you. (laughs) Well, and I think again, like anything else, right? It's like find ways to eat that feel good in your body and if this feels good in your body, great. And if it doesn't, then find what does, you know, it's like physical activity, find a physical activity you like, whatever that is. And that's actually really just as important as the rest of the things around it. Yeah. A hundred percent and eat more olives. Thanks so much for listening to Little. We really appreciate your support. And if you could do us a big favor and subscribe and share this podcast, it would mean the world to us.